Good morning. It's good to see all of you here. Thank you for coming, being part of our services here at Ivy Creek today, and it's good to be back. I, uh, I want to say thank you to uh, Scott Sullivan for filling in for me uh, last week, particularly as my family and I got a chance to get away and spend some time uh, uh, resting and relaxing uh, out of town, and I appreciate so much him doing that and filling in for me, and, and um, I just appreciate Scott. I appreciate his love for the gospel. And uh, I appreciate having such a trusted friend in him that uh, we can lean on one another. He is like iron that sharpens iron, and I am grateful for that. And that's important for, uh, for even your pastor to have in his life, and I am grateful for him. Uh, I'm grateful to you for uh, affording my family and I the opportunity to spend some time away. I enjoyed every second of it. And uh, I'd go do it again tomorrow if y'all let me go. I mean, it'd be all right. But... Uh, we really did. We had a good time being away, and uh, I'm grateful for that. But I'm excited to be back with you this morning, and I'm excited to be able to open God's Word and us be able to share time together, uh, studying it together. So if you've got your Bibles with you, and I hope that you do, please take them. Turn with me again to the, the book of Acts and to chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. We're going to look at the first eight verses of this chapter uh, this morning, and, and what I want us to contemplate together in our time today is what it means for us to put the pain of our past into its proper perspective. In fact, that's the title of my sermon today, putting the pain of our past into its proper perspective. Now, while you're making your way there to Acts chapter 8, let me remind some of you and maybe introduce some of you. Uh, for the very first time, to a story that dominated the Christian headlines some 66 and a half years ago. On January the 6th, 1956, five missionaries flew on a small plane into the jungle of Ecuador, and they landed on the shore of a, of a lonely river. And their mission was to take the message of the gospel for the very first time to some of the primitive Indians who were living there. No sooner did the plane land and they get off of that plane on that little sandy beach than when from out of the jungle emerged a crowd of natives who immediately attacked those five missionaries with spears. All five men were killed and their bodies were thrown into that river. The news of that massacre, as you might imagine, shocked the world. It was hard to get people's minds around what all had occurred, but what made it even more difficult for people to, to be able to stomach was the fact that each man left behind a widow and each man left behind a family of children that would be raised without their father. And to many... They saw the deaths of these five missionaries as a senseless tragedy. But, but time and, and, and history have provided a different perspective on the events that occurred on that Ecuadorian beach. In fact, decades later, Elizabeth Elliot, whose husband was Jim Elliot, one of those missionaries who was killed, would write these words. She said, to the world at large, this was a sad waste of five young lives. But God has His plan and purpose in all things. 
There were those whose lives were changed by what happened on that beach. In Brazil, she says, a group of Indians at a mission station deep in the Mato Grosso, upon hearing the news, dropped to their knees and cried out to God for forgiveness for their own lack of concern for fellow Indians who did not know of Jesus Christ. She says an Air Force major stationed in England with many hours of jet flying immediately began making plans to join the Missionary Aviation Fellowship. She writes, a missionary in Africa wrote these words, Our work will never be the same. We knew two of the men. Their lives have left their mark on ours. And then in Des Moines, Iowa, an 18-year-old boy prayed for a week in his room, then announced to his parents, I'm turning my life over completely to the Lord. I want to try to take the place of one of the five. The reality is simply that the tragedy of these events in Ecuador served as the spark for an untold number of missionaries to go out into the world and to give their lives for the cause of Christ. Forty years later, when Elizabeth Elliot wrote her, her book, she would go on to say these words. She says, who of the five men could have ever imagined the long-term effects of their simple act of obedience? They faithfully followed the master. They paid the ultimate price. And those around the world who, would have been, who have been transformed by their testimony cannot be numbered. Now, I wanted to lead with that story today because I believe it perfectly illustrates the events that we're going to look at from Acts chapter 8 this morning. If you'll recall when we were last together some three weeks ago, we looked at what the, the, a large section beginning at the end of chapter 6 and going all the way through chapter 7. And that long section of, of our study culminated with the death of Stephen, who was one of the seven men chosen by the church to serve them as a deacon. Stephen, as we read, was stoned to death because of his faithful witness to Christ. He became the first martyr of the Christian faith. And now to some, I, I would imagine that were there and part of the church there in Jerusalem in that first century, no doubt they viewed Stephen's death the way many viewed the death of these missionaries on that Ecuadorian beach. They viewed it as a senseless tragedy. After all, a bright, influential, talented, shining star of the Christian faith was now dead. But what makes matters even worse, as we will read this morning, is that following Stephen's death, or his death actually served as the tipping point that led to the great persecution of the church there in Jerusalem. Horrifying times suddenly came upon the rest of the believers there. And many were being driven out of their homes, driven out of the city of Jerusalem, but also many were being dragged away to prison. And it was a tragic set of events to be sure. But as we dig into the scriptures today, what we come to realize is that this tragic set of circumstances that Luke recounts for us actually served as the catalyst for the first missionary movement in the church. In other words, based upon what Luke tells us, we see that though what happened to the church there in Jerusalem was certainly and understandably tragic at the time, 
God nevertheless ultimately used those tragic and painful circumstances to bring about good. He brought about the expansion of the church and the spread of the gospel. And so with that as as an intro into what we're going to look at today, read with me those first eight verses of Acts chapter 8 today. Hear the word of God. What Luke begins with is in reference to Stephen's martyrdom. And he writes this, he says, Now Saul was consenting to his death. And at that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they all scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere, preaching the word. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. And the multitudes, with one accord, heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits, crying with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. And there was great joy in that city. Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Father, thank you for your love and your mercy, and thank you for this day that you've given to us to be able to come together and assemble in your house and be able to read your Word and study it for ourselves. And I pray that as we do that today, that you would open our hearts, open our minds to understand what you would want us to to glean from this passage. Father, I believe very clearly that that this passage teaches us that we're to have a different perspective oftentimes than than what we do on the difficulties that we face in our lives. And I pray that today that you would use your word to be able to impact us and influence us to see things from the way you see it. I pray that in doing that, we would grow and we would mature in our faith and become stronger believers with the voice of the gospel on our lips and wherever we go. I pray these things in Christ's holy name. Amen. So as I mentioned, the title of my sermon today is Putting the Pain of Your Past into Its Proper Perspective. And and in order for us to do that effectively and, and to understand how we might go about that, I want us just to follow along with the flow of this passage and, and analyze what we find in it. And as I do quite often to help us on our journey, I provided you with some simple hooks for us to just hang our thoughts on as we move through the passage. And the first one is just simply this. It's the, the one word, it's persecution. Persecution. As I mentioned earlier, Luke tells us that Stephen's death served as the catalyst that brought on the persecution of the church there in Jerusalem. In fact, we read that the very day that Stephen was stoned to death, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. Luke also tells us about Saul. He tells us that that when Stephen was stoned to death, Saul was a young man who stood there and looked on consenting to or approving of what happened. Now, based upon what we read back in chapter 7, 
verse 58, apparently Saul wasn't the one who was picking up the, the rocks to throw at Stephen. Rather, he was the one that was guarding all of the outer coats of the ones who did throw the rocks. In other words, Saul was complicit. Saul was consenting to Stephen's death. And I think that Luke introduces us to Saul here purposefully. Not only because Saul was there and played a part in what occurred. Yes, that's the case. But I think he introduces it because, well, this event haunted Saul for the rest of his life. We know Saul was eventually converted. We know that his name was changed from Saul to Paul. And we ultimately know that he became the most influential apostle to the New Testament church after Jesus and, and after Peter. Luke knew, knew that too. He, he knew enough of the history when he wrote the book of Acts that he introduces Saul here so that we, his readers, might understand Saul's background, that we might see how he purposefully opposed the church and that we can begin to understand all of the dramatic changes that occurred in his life. But before we get to all of those, we have to consider the fact that Luke tells us that, that following Stephen's death, it was Saul who began to, to persecute the church. He was the one leading the charge. In fact, in verse 3, we read this, that it was Saul who made havoc of the church, who ravaged the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Now, what that tells us, just as a, 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 a reading of the word, is that the kind of persecution that the church was experiencing here was not some light harassment. This, this was not just being poked fun at because you were a Christian, being made to feel awkward in public because you had a different way of viewing life and a different way of understanding religion. No, this persecution that was being foisted upon those Christians there in Jerusalem was brutality. And it was being inflicted upon them because they followed Jesus. In fact, listen to how Paul describes what he did, how what his role in the persecution was. He tells us in Acts chapter 22, verses 4 and 5, he says, I persecuted the way. I persecuted followers of Christ to the death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women, bringing in chains even those who were there to Jerusalem to be punished. He goes on to say in Acts chapter 26, verses 10 and 11, he says, Many of the saints, I shut up in prison, and I punished them often in every synagogue, and compelled them to blaspheme, and being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them to foreign cities. Listen, Paul was not someone you wanted chasing you down. He was a bad guy when it came to persecuting Christians. The ESV translates the verse here that, that we read that Paul was ravaging the church. That's the only time that that word is used in the Greek New Testament. And, and what it means is that it means to destroy. It means to ruin. It means to damage beyond repair. It, it paints the image of a wild dog that is tearing apart the flesh of another animal that it has caught. 
That's what Saul and others were doing to the believers there in Jerusalem. And here is what resulted from that persecution. Notice what Luke tells us in verse 1. It caused those believers who were there in Jerusalem to scatter throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. They dispersed. They moved out of Jerusalem. Many of them going back to the regions that they had come from originally. You remember back in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, we talked about this, that when when the 120 believers were cloistered together there in that upper room and they were praying for the Holy Spirit to come, when the Spirit did come, it rested upon them and and, um, amazingly, miraculously allowed them to begin to start speaking in foreign tongues. These were not unintelligible tongues. These were actually languages of foreign people who had come from all over the region. They had come from Europe. They had come from the Middle East. They'd come from Northern Africa. And they had all come into Jerusalem because of Pentecost. And they were crowding the streets of Jerusalem. And here these 120 believers, freshly empowered by the Holy Spirit, go out into the streets and begin to preach the good news of the gospel in their own languages. That was the miracle that occurred at Pentecost. What happened as a result of that is that many of those people who were Jews, but, but they were, they were Greek speaking Jews. They were foreign, foreigners to the, to the land of Israel, wound up placing their faith in Christ and staying in the city. Jerusalem became their home. They, they connected with the Hebrew speaking Jews that were there and formed the church there in Jerusalem. But when this great persecution began to occur, when men and women began to be dragged away into prison for their faith, when family members started coming up missing, when it was no longer safe to be a Christian in Jerusalem, many of those who had ties to other places left and went back. They scattered. And listen. That had been God's plan all along. You see, God never intended all of those believers to stay centralized there in Jerusalem. Remember what Jesus told His disciples in the very first sermon that we looked at together in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, the key verse to the entire book, Jesus says to them, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You will be witnesses to me in Jerusalem but also in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Listen, part of the fulfillment of Acts chapter 1 verse 8 begins to occur right here in Acts chapter 8 verse 1 when we read that thousands and thousands of those believers began to experience persecution and were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. And it didn't stop there. In fact, Luke kind of goes off for a little while and we, we, we read some other things that occur here in Samaria. But, but later he picks up on the same idea in Acts chapter 11, verse 19. And he says, those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. In other words, they made it to what was then the known world of the uttermost parts of the world. And what were they doing? What were these Christians doing as they were being scattered and pursued by Saul and others like him? As they were going out in the world, what were they doing? 
Well, that brings us to the next hook that you'll find there on your outline. Notice that Luke tells us that what followed the persecution was preaching. Preaching. We read in verse 4 that those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the Word. In other words, these scattered Christians that fled the persecution in Jerusalem went out and when they did, they took the gospel with them. Now, that initially might seem like a strange thing to do though, right? I mean, after all, it was the proclamation of the gospel. It was the testimony to Jesus Christ that had gotten Stephen killed to begin with. It was because these believers were were connected to one another, but more importantly, because of their faithfulness to Jesus. It was because of that that they were being pursued and that they were being persecuted to begin with. Consequently, the natural thought might be that that as they scattered, what they would do is that they they would keep quiet about their affiliation with Jesus. They would just make it a... It's just a personal thing between me and God. It's not going to be anything that I'm going to force upon anybody else. This is just a personal thing. You might think that they might treat it that way. They'd be a little more tight-lipped about their faith in Jesus. But that's not what happened at all. The persecution that they experienced did not hamper their witness. Rather, it gave rise to their preaching. Now, the word that's used here... And translated preaching there in verse 4 is the word euangelizo in Greek. And if you listen hard enough, you can hear the word evangel in there. It, it really is a word that means to evangelize. It, it's a word that means to spread the good news. It's a word that, that, it's not the same word that's used for what I'm doing this morning. That word is, is typically the word caruso. And that is the the meaning of the public declaration of the truth of the gospel. Caruso is the word that Luke uses to describe what Philip does later when he goes to Samaria. We'll come to that in just a moment. But to euangelizo means to gossip about. It means to chatter about. It means to, to talk about the good news of Jesus in everyday conversations. I can imagine... One of those conversations going something like this, a guy gets to a new area and somebody sees him for the first time and says, hey, you don't look familiar to me. Are you new to town? As a matter of fact, I am. I just came here from Jerusalem. Really? Why'd you come from Jerusalem? Let me tell you. There's a lot of persecution going on in Jerusalem for people that believe in Jesus. Jesus? Who's Jesus? Man, I'm glad you asked. Jesus is the Messiah sent by God to be able to find the, to be able to, to, to cleanse us from our sins and to write our relationship with God. He is the religious one who has come to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. But the religious leaders in Jerusalem, they didn't like him. They didn't believe anything. As a matter of fact, the religious leaders in Jerusalem had Jesus put to death, had him crucified on the cross. But here's the thing. He didn't stay dead. He rose again on the third day. In fact, he appeared to his disciples and his disciples have now filled the city of Jerusalem with his teaching. That's where I heard about him. The disciples were teaching about him. I heard about him. I heard about the hope that he offers to sinners like me and I placed my faith in Jesus and I've given my whole heart to him. And here's the best news. You ready for it? What he did for me, he'll do for you too. Now, 
we don't have that example in Scripture where that exact thing occurred, but my guess is that it occurred again and again and again and again. The text says that God used the persecution of these Christians to mobilize them and to create within them this burning passion to evangelize. And those scattered believers began to chatter and to discuss the gospel wherever they went. And as Luke makes it clear, it was not the apostles. It was not just the clergy who were the ones identified as conversing in this manner. As a matter of fact, Luke makes it clear that the apostles stayed in Jerusalem. He's talking about the rank and file, the average typical believer who's going out in the world and chatting up Jesus to everybody that they can. And that is important to note. You see, carrying the gospel of the world is not just the responsibility of the quote-unquote professionals. The reality is, is that all of us have a responsibility to gossip about the gospel, to chatter about it, to bring it up and converse about it in our everyday interactions with others. And you do that by telling others what you know. You tell others about how you have trusted in Christ to forgive you of your sins. You tell others about the hope that the Scriptures offer for eternal life. You tell them about the peace that you have in knowing that you are in a right relationship with God because of what Christ has done for you. And listen, when you make yourself available and you are open to having conversations like that with other people, Jesus promises you in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 that He will fill you with Holy Spirit power. And He will empower you to engage in those conversations. You don't need to be an expert. You simply need to be willing to allow the Spirit of God to work through you to impact the lives of others. Now that was the kind of preaching that these scattered believers were doing. But it's not the only kind of preaching that was occurring. And notice, notice as I mentioned to you, Philip went to Samaria. Philip was also a deacon who liked Stephen. Matter of fact, when, when the, the seven deacons are introduced to us there in Acts 6, Stephen is first, Philip second. And I would imagine that Philip and Stephen were pretty close. I would imagine that they, had a, they shared a, a wonderful relationship with one another. They served alongside one another. And it, it, it reminds me of the fact that when Philip went to Samaria to preach, Philip didn't go with a heart that had not been broken by what had occurred in Jerusalem. This was his friend. This was his fellow servant in Christ. And as, as one person that I read put it, what do you do on the, on the day after the worst day of your life? You get up. You cry. But you, cry, you read your Bible. You trust the Lord. And you take a step forward in obedience. And for Philip, the step forward in obedience, was to move to preaching in Samaria. Samaria was not a place that a Jew wanted to go. Many times they would walk way outside in order to never go into that region. Philip, on the other hand, goes to a city, a certain city there in Samaria, and he begins to preach. And that word is the word caruso, and it means to publicly proclaim the truth of something. Well, what was it that... Philip was proclaiming. Rather, who was it that Philip was proclaiming? Well, he's proclaiming Christ. He preached Christ to them. 
He publicly proclaimed Jesus as the Messiah, the one who had come to give his life so that all people everywhere might receive everlasting life through repentance and faith. And faith, excuse me. And notice what happened. Verses 6 through 8. Multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing miracles which he did. For unclean spirits, crying with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. And there was great joy in that city. Do not miss those details because they're important. What Luke tells us is that prior to this point, this Samaritan city had been hopelessly and helplessly under the reign of demonic power and sickness. But because of Stephen's martyrdom and the onset of persecution, Philip left Jerusalem and he traveled to this city and preached Jesus to them with boldness and in the full power of the Holy Spirit. And as a result, everything changed for these Samaritans. Their destinies changed. The way that they were able to live in this world changed. Suddenly, the sadness and the misery that had previously enveloped this people group was replaced by great joy. Listen, that provides us with a different perspective on what occurred in Jerusalem. If we just think about Jerusalem from the perspective of the fact that Stephen was now dead and that there was persecution that was going on without considering the rest of the story, then we lose exactly what the Bible wants to bring to our attention. You see, when we consider the persecution that Luke describes and we realize that what resulted in it was preaching and the sharing of the good news of the gospel that changed lives, what we come to understand is that God has a purpose in everything that He does. In fact, that's the third hook that I have for you this morning. The third hook is this, it's purpose. God has a purpose in everything that occurs in our lives. All the way, as we see that here in this passage, all the way from the death of Stephen to the persecution of the church. And if we take a step back and look at our own lives, we can begin to realize that God has a clear purpose in everything that's ever happened with us. And His purpose extends all the way to the past pain that we have experienced. In fact, I believe this passage here in Acts chapter 8 illustrates for us what the patriarch Joseph once said with regard to his brothers. You remember his brothers? You like to have some brothers like Joseph, right? Sell you into Egyptian slavery. And then suddenly when he revealed who he was to them and they were all worried about what Joseph would think because Joseph was now second only to Pharaoh himself in Egypt. Joseph looked at them in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, and says, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. You see how that works? There are things that can come into your life that are hard, that are painful, that are challenging, that hurt. And there's someone who's standing on the other side who intended to hurt you, God, in His sovereign and divine ability, is able to take that and turn it and use it, not only for His glory, but for your good. In fact, old Saul, Saul the persecutor, who ended up becoming Paul the preacher, he wrote a little something about that too. 
Later in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, Paul wrote, and we know that all things, not some things, not just the easy things, not just the good things, but all things, every one of them, all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to His purpose. Now, does that mean that you and I can always understand and appreciate the pain that we're forced to endure in the moment that it comes upon us? I don't think so. In fact, I agree with Derek Thomas, who writes that it is doubtful if those present in Jerusalem when Stephen was murdered and the persecution broke out were able to say, you know, look, I can see the purpose in God in all of this. When it first occurred... They didn't know what God was going to do and how He would use those circumstances to spread the gospel to the nations of the world. No, at the time, they no doubt were bowed down by the weight of their suffering and they were nursing their wounds and they were praying for their loved ones from whom they were separated. But later, with the aid of the Holy Spirit and the help of seeing their past through eyes of faith, they were able to realize that the persecution they experienced was what propelled the gospel into the world. And as the story continued to unfold, it became clear that while Satan tried to stamp out the flame that had been started in Jerusalem, all his stomping did was scatter the embers out everywhere else and more fires began to burn. Listen, there's a lesson to be learned there. Sometimes, sometimes difficulty and trial can bring spiritual outcomes in our lives in ways that nothing else ever could. We have to remind ourselves regularly that suffering may be and often is part of God's normal means of grace for His church. And as one has written, Christianity tends to flourish when it is up against the wall when its people depend upon God and upon prayer, and when we are outsiders to the culture. We know a little something about that now. We as the church know a little bit about what it's like to be outsiders to the culture. And, but rather than lamenting and wringing our hands over that, rather how we ought to see it is that oftentimes when we're outsiders to the culture, God raises us up to have a, an ability to speak to it with a louder voice than we ever did when we were in the middle of the culture. Because God works through all things to bring about His good and His glory. There's one final observation that I want to offer you based upon what we read in this passage. You see, not all the pain that we have experienced in our past has come as a result of persecution and trial that has been inflicted upon us. You see, the reality is there's some of us who struggle with past pain that we have caused others. I mentioned earlier that I believe that the role that Saul played in the death of Stephen haunted him for the rest of his life. In fact, you can almost hear the sorrow in his voice. You can almost see the tears 
rolling down his cheeks when he recounts for a Jewish crowd that had gathered together in Acts chapter 22. He recounts a prayer that he prayed to the Lord. He said, Lord, I imprisoned and beat those who believe on you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing by consenting to his death and guarding the clothes of those who were killing. You know, no doubt even after Saul came to faith in Christ and he became known as Paul, I, I believe he probably rehearsed that event, relived that moment again and again and again in his life. I think probably when he closed his eyes to sleep at night, he could see Stephen's face shining with the glory of God. He could hear Stephen saying, do not count the sins of these men against them. And I believe that it probably haunted him for all of his life. But here's the thing. There was nothing that he could do about it. It was all in his past. There was no way he could unscramble the events that had occurred. My guess is there's some of you in this room that have events like that in your past. Maybe it's not something to that degree of where someone loses their life. But my guess is that there's some of you in this room that are dragging some of the past with you and, and realizing that there were some things specifically in your past for which you have created pain for other people. And that, in return, as you look back on it, is painful for you. Listen, what I want you to know is that even that past pain must also be put into its proper perspective. How do you do that? How do you deal with the pain of the past and the hurt that you've caused others? Well, listen to how Paul dealt with it. He writes these words in 1 Timothy 1, verse 13 and following. He says, I was formerly a blasphemer. I was a persecutor. I was an insolent man. But I obtained mercy. He goes on to say, And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. He says, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. However, he says, for this reason I obtained mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show all long suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for eternal life. You see, Paul looked at it and says, God even took what I did that I couldn't ever atone for. I couldn't ever make up for what I did. I couldn't ever buy my way back into the group. But purely out of His grace and His mercy, God saved me, forgave me, and has now allowed me to use my own testimony as a means of pointing others to the grace and the mercy that they too can experience, particularly those who have messed their lives up as well. You see, there was no attempt to excuse what He had done only to acknowledge his sinfulness and point to the gracious and merciful God who through Christ had changed his life. Listen, brothers and sisters, what that proves to us is that God does not waste one ounce of the pain that you have ever experienced in your life or will ever experience. Be that the pain that has been inflicted upon you or pain that you have inflicted upon someone else. God is able and He is willing to use all of it, every last bit, 
as a means of pointing others to Jesus. And that's what leads me to my sermon in a sentence this morning, which is this. When viewed from the proper perspective of faith, our past pain, both endured and inflicted upon others, can be used by God to magnify His grace and display His glory. In his book, Reaching for the Invisible God, Philip Yancey addresses this issue. And he writes these words. He says, when good things happen, I accept them as gifts from God worthy of thanksgiving. When bad things happen, I do not take them as necessarily sent by God. Rather, I trust that God can use even those bad things for my benefit. Faith allows me to believe that despite the chaos of the present moment, God does reign. And that regardless of how worthless I may feel, I truly matter to a God of love. And that no pain lasts forever and no evil triumphs in the end. After all, faith sees even the darkest deed of all history, the death of God's Son, as a necessary prelude to the brightest. So understanding that then, brothers and sisters, when you go through trials and tribulations, not if, when you go through them, when you experience pain and even persecution, follow the example in, that, that Yancey advocates. He says, trust God's heart, trust His wisdom, trust His sovereignty, trust His power, and then ask yourself these questions. Is my heavenly Father allowing this to motivate me to mature spiritually? Is God allowing this temporary persecution to teach me eternal truth? Is He showing me that I can rely on Him no matter what comes? Is He using this to give me a platform to share my faith in a place that I've never been before. I think if we consider those thoughts as we consider our past pain, God in His mercy will give us a different perspective than that which we have carried with us to this point. And we can be reminded of what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. We fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, for what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Brothers and sisters, that is how you put the pain of your past into its proper perspective. Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of God for the people of God. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word, and I thank you for what it teaches us, not just about the biblical history of the church, but what it teaches us about what we're going through in our lives right now. We recognize just as you worked there in that first century world, so too are you working today. You've not disengaged, you've not sat down and decided not to be involved. You're still working, you're working in our lives corporately, the life of this church corporately, the life, but you're also working in the lives of individuals. And Father, I know that 
in a room this size, as I scan across it, I see many faces, people that I know, things that I know about them. I know pain that they carry with them. And Lord, it just reminds me, if I know what little that I can see, I can only begin to imagine all of what is represented by this room. The reality is you know every bit of it. There's nothing that escapes you. And so we as your people come before you, humbling ourselves before you, recognizing that you're a sovereign God who does exactly what you say. That you can take all of those moments of our lives and areas where we have failed miserably, areas where others have failed us, pain that we are dragging around with us, we realize that you have given us through your Holy Spirit the ability to to move past the pain and to be able to see it from your perspective and as opportunities to share the good news of Christ with others, to grow in our spiritual walk. So I pray that you would do that. As we leave this place today, I pray that we would be filled with a realization of your love for us and how you want to work through those difficult moments of our past. So Father, do that for your glory and for your honor. If there's one here who does not know you as their Lord and Savior, and Father, the pain of their past is truly tragic because they have no hope of what you're going to do to change their life. But God, I pray that today that they would hear the message of the gospel, that you have sent your son Jesus to die for them so that they might be saved from their sins and be able to embrace you in the fullness of your sovereign love for them. I ask these things and I pray them in the name of Christ and for his sake.